1: Welcome back to the New Books Network. This is your um, podcast host, Shu Wan. Today, I feel very happy to invite Dr. Tian Zheng to join us to introduce her newest book, uh, Violence, Intimacy, Family Harmony, State Stability, and Intimate Partner Violence in Post-Socialist China. So for the first question today, I want to invite Dr. Zheng to introduce herself to us.
0: Hi, Shu. Thank you very much for inviting me to this book talk. I really appreciate that. Um, My name is Tintian Zheng. I'm the SUNY Distinguished Professor of Anthropology uh, with a PhD at Yale University in Anthropology. Uh, my works previously dealt with karaoke bar hostesses, rural to rural urban migration, same sex attracted man, and disease transmission, and uh, high sec, high uh, risk sexual experiences uh, or behaviors, and intimate partner violence in China.
1: Okay, thanks so much for your answer. And my, for my next question, I'm wondering why you are interested in this very interesting subject I intimate partner violence in China.
0: Thank you so much for that wonderful question. So I'm an anthropologist and I'm also a social scientist. And I always consider myself um, to add to that also a social activist. So I consider it my mission to expose and explore social issues and social problems such as you know gay issues and um, migration issues and inequality issues and violence issues. And I tell stories of how individuals on the ground are actually affected by these problems and issues in their daily lives. So during my first field work uh, with rural migrant karaoke bar hostesses, I found out that many informants of mine experienced violence from their boyfriends. Uh, for example, one of my key informants, uh, her name is Tong Tong, you know, she was 20 years old. And she was regularly beaten by her boyfriend in front of everyone. And she often grabbed his beer bottle and just fight back. And so her boyfriend told me, you know, the reason that he, that he beat her was because she dared to fight back. And she, he also said that he beat her to make a good woman out of her. And so she was one of the example of uh, many others uh, who experienced similar kind of violence during my, during my field work. And um, during my fieldwork, I also accompanied many hostesses back to the rural hometowns where I learned that husband's beating of wives was so common, it was considered a normal part of life. It also reminded me of the time when I pursued my MA degree in China. Uh, One of my close classmates was beaten by her boyfriend who broke her nose and when I accompanied her to the hospital to have it treated She said to me the moment he started beating me. I felt he was so manly. He was so masculine It was a real man So these experiences from my own previous fieldwork and also from my close classmates Um, I, um, I felt like being awakened to the gravity of the issue of domestic violence or intimate partner violence in China. So as a social activist who we'll always see my research as a weapon, you know, to treat and target social issues, I started research on this topic.
1: Okay, thank you so much for your answer. Then let's turn to your book. So for the first question about the book, I want to invite you to talk about the briefing, talk about the history of intimate partner violence in China.
0: Thank you, Shu, for that question. So prior to 1911, although violence was generally disapproved by the Chinese Confucian classics, husband's violence against wives was, however, accepted and widely practiced. It was not until 1911, during the Republican era, that violence against wives was combated against uh, as embodiment of the backwardness and weakness of the Chinese nation. The communist era passed the 1950 marriage law, which rendered the abuse of women illegal, catapulting an unprecedented number of divorce cases in China, mostly filed by women on the basis of intimate partner violence or domestic violence. Post-socialist China continued the progress in the realm of the law and rectified in, 19, 19, uh, in 2015 the anti-domestic violence law. So from the perspective of the law, all these political regimes, like from the Republican era to the communist era to the post-socialist era, they have increasingly made greater and greater strides in protecting women's rights, protecting uh, gender equality with the law. However, across all these historical periods, government officials and local officials and law enforcement officials in the judicial system held deeply embedded patriarchal ideas as I've uh, illustrated in the book. And their inaction and male-biased deliberations led to glaring discrepancy between the law and the practice perpetuating the violence against women.
1: Thanks so much for your answers. So for the next question, I want to invite you to talk about the underlying reason for the perceived division between wealthy versus unwealthy victims of sexual violence and the cultural system of gender power hierarchy that creates injustice and inequality.
0: Thank you so much, Zhu, for that wonderful, wonderful question. So the underlying reason for the division between the Worthy versus unworthy victims are, uh, as I um, spelled out in the book, institutional, structural, and also legal. So legal cases, as I spelled out, as well as medical and legal and popular discourses, obscure the boundary between coercion and consent and dichotomize this uh, worthy versus unworthy victims. And so men's sexuality was uh, portrayed in medical and popular discourses as unruly biological urges that is difficult to control. Whereas women's sexuality is portrayed as passive with a low sex drive, has to be awakened by men through physical persuasion. So the idea here is that worthy victims identified as pure and chaste and virgins who are willing to redeem their honor through sacrificing their lives against assailants. Whereas unworthy victims are portrayed as immoral and seductive seductive women who are blamed for having invited their own downfall. So they are suspected for not having behaved responsibly, acting transgressively or provocatively. And um, so unworthy women are described as secretly desiring sex but understand that they are culturally obligated to resist sex. So the legal discourse of half-pushing and half-acquiescing in Chinese is ban tui ban jiu, uh, deems unworthy women's verbal refusal um, to be dishonest and discreditable. And therefore, men may perceive a certain level of physical force to be acceptable or even necessary to awaken uh, women's sexual desire or even fulfill their deepest, deepest sexual desire. So this cultural logic redefines sexual assault as a result of women's responsibility. Um, So women are seen as the reason uh, that men made these physical persuasion or physical advances. and argue in the book that legal institutions, police forces and medical doctors and popular discourses, they form a formidable bulwark against a woman's ability to report um, any sexual violence. And these structural forces work together to draw the distinction between who is worthy and who is unworthy and normalize sexual coercion and blur the boundary between violent and consensual sexual practices. They embody a kind of violent sexual structural system of gender inequality and politics that polices and regulates women's bodies and sexuality.
1: Thank you so much for your answer again. So, for the next question, I'm wondering about how the Chinese criminal justice system deals with, with the intimate partner violence with the state discourse of family harmony and the state st- stability.
0: Thank you so much, uh, for that great question. Um, family harmony, um, as I uh, illustrated in the book, uh, in the state discourse is deemed pivotal to the state stability and social security. So following this state-directed principle, the Supreme Court's illustrated or issued a directive, and this directive documents dictates that criminalizing abusers risks dissolving marriages and disrupting family harmony, and therefore should be avoided. As a result, police and court judges rely on civil man- mechanisms such as mediation, written warning notes, personal uh, safety protection orders. The penalty to the abusers involves a fine, which is less than $142, and also a detention, which is less than 15 days, uh, if they committed any kind of quote-unquote minor injuries. And these minor injuries are defined as miscarriage uh, or rib fracture, nose fracture. Uh, finger, wrist fracture, foot fracture, and uh, scalp laceration of less than, or more than ten centimeters, or eye socket fracture, um, facial burning, and body burning, and so on. But criminalization is only applied to abusers who inflict severe damages such as mutilation or paralysis. In other words, if someone lost their legs, you know, or completely paralyzed and cannot even stand up, and in those cases, abusers will be criminalized. So the Chinese criminal law exhibits deeply entrenched inequities, as I argue in the book, in applying these uh, more severe sentences to violent cases, even between strangers, than to violent cases between family members, um, especially you know uh, between the uh, from the husbands to the to the to the wives, and light sentences between six months to six years were usually given to male abusers who have brutally beaten their wives to death, but heavier sentences between 10 years in prison, a death sentence was usually given to wives who had killed abusers in self-defense. So you can see this kind of gender inequity implicit in the legal structure fails to provide victims with the necessary legal recourse to rectify the violence for the, and for the women to seek justice. It also violates the Chinese constitution that guarantees equal protection between the women and men under the law.
1: Thank you so much for your answer again. So one thing I want to say, uh, when I read your book, one of your important arguments impressed me a lot, as according to you, the violence against women is not a monolithic phenomenon, but a complex structural problem of multiple forms of oppression growing out of unequal social hierarchy. So I want to invite you to further talk about your argument here.
0: Yeah thank you so much. So in the thank you so much for the question. So in the in the book I talked about um the men uh, who um rationalized their violence in their um interviews in my um unstructured interviews with them. And the men in my research they invoked the discourse of Zui Ying, um, the women's harsh mouth or strong mouth and also yu mobing you know this woman has yu mobing this woman has maladies or a fault to explain why they beat the women. So I argue in the book that these kind of Zui Ying and Yu mobbing discourse are not just rationalizing framework, um, but also a political kind of regulatory mechanism that blames victims and subjugating women's mouths and women's behaviors so to scrutiny, to control and to regulation. And and I argue in the book that echoed in the popular and medical and official discourse is the causal relationship between male violence and a faulty wife with a harsh, nagging and dirty mouth. To quote a psychology expert in the book, um, quote, when a man is faced with a woman who is gentle like water, he will be reluctant to beat her, end quote. So what crystallized in this discourse is that if a woman behaves properly and is gentle enough, she can never be the target of violence. So male violence now is identified as victim precipitated. And such a discourse condemns women's harsh mouth and labels non-conforming wives as women having maladies. And that manifests in their failure to fulfill proper gender roles and behaviors such as, you know, staying home after work and handling all household chores and so on. And government officials and psychology expert and my interviewees um, all made the point that women should transform themselves in order to avoid this issue of violence. So this kind of self-transformation Includes controlling women's speech, staying quiet, observing wifely duties, and being subservient, gentle, and loyal and submissive. This is what I see as a more politically and structural um, regulatory framework to, uh, um, to put women into the place. So I argue that this discourse kind of disguises. Uh, the political economic structure, especially when women are called for, you know, to sacrifice themselves, um, to um, to retire from work early so that there are more men in the job markets and women need to go home and take on their wifely uh, duties and responsibilities. And so this kind of structure places women at a disadvantage and leaving women at a risk for male violence because um, the lack of economic resources hinders women's ability to alter the status quo of domestic violence. So the kind of questionable reasoning um, basically makes it impossible for the man to be held accountable for, kind of, for any kind of violent behavior against the uh, intimate partners, because by definition, male violence is always caused by the women's inadequate behaviors. So that was the argument of the book, for the chapter
1: four. Thank you so much for your answer. So, when I, I'm I'm on say when I read the book, I noticed besides talk about the origin and the causes of intimate partner violence against women in China, you also talk about a solution. So I want to invite you talk about how activists and non-government organizations anti-domestic violence efforts and endeavors in China.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. So I interviewed uh, many activists and non-government organizations uh, leaders uh, for this chapter. And uh, particularly, I learned that the 1995 UN World Conference on Women held in Beijing ushered in a new era of Chinese women's movement to establish many NGOs to protect women's rights against domestic violence, including these, these NGOs at the beginning were Beijing Maple Women's Counseling Center, um, Center and the Media Monitor for Women Network, Feminist Voice, Anti Domestic Violence Network, and Beijing University Law School Women's Legal Research and Service Center. These are very pioneering NGOs, and I think they need to be spelled out, you know, by their names because these women are the pioneers of the activists in the 1990s. And through the strategic depoliticizing, what I mean by depoliticizing is that these women do not use human rights, do not use democracy, do not use these kind of politically sensitive discourse in their agenda. Um, so they're not really in the oppositional relationship with the state. Uh, but they, what they sought to do was they bring the policy changes by working with the state so they engage with state institutions especially fudian you know women's federation and also the accessing state mechanisms from different uh, municipal governments and they confine their strategies within this uh, kind of state owned field framework because they realize that only when working with the state can they get their agendas you know uh, practice, into practice. So this kind of pragmatic, strategic alliance with government agencies turned out to be extremely successful uh, because in in 2015, as we have seen, the um, anti-domestic violence law, which was drafted and proposed by the NGO, which um, that is titled Anti-Domestic Violence Network, um, finally got passed, uh, marking a historical milestone Of being the first law against domestic violence in Chinese history, so it was really, um, as I said, you know, it's it's a triumph, it's a a quite transcending setting um, success for the NGOs at the beginning of uh, of this uh, movement. So, in addition to cooperating with the state discourse, um, they continued the rationale, of the linkage between women's status and China's global reputation and status as a nation. So what they're saying is, you know, they're, they, what they um, propagate is that only when we raise women's, Chinese women's social status, can the Chinese nation's status in the whole world gets heightened. Uh, so in this way, they, they try to get the state to step in and help out with women's issues. So through this kind of strategy, domestic violence uh, was couched by the activists as a threat to social harmony, and social stability, the same state discourse, you know, that emphasizes family harmony, social stability. So they kind of appropriate that and to call for the state's intervention in this issue and responsibility to support activists in combating domestic violence. Um, In this way, they advocated to the state that domestic violence is a social conflict that needs to be resolved, needs to be repressed to maintain harmony. And they they did succeed in many ways by promoting legal reform, providing free legal aid and advocating public awareness of domestic violence in society. And their collective activism has produced many positive legal reforms and social changes that individuals could never have been able to achieve on their own. And their collective agency has demonstrated their shared drive and their steadfast commitment to fight against gender-based violence um, has ensured gender equality and social justice for the vulnerable population in the society.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much again for your answer. So at the end of our episode today, I want to directly to talk to our listeners. So if any of you take interest in I mean either the past interest in the past and present of uh, family, gender or violence in China, I highly recommend you consider buy a copy of Dr. Tian Jones newest book violent, sorry violent intimacy. Family harmony, state stability, and intimate partner violence in post social China. And personally speaking, as a historian of gender and sexuality in China, I think this book is one of the best books about the topic. So at the end, I want to say again the title. Please remember the title if you plan to and if you plan to Google it or find a copy on Amazon. Violent intimacy family harmony, state stability, and intimate partner violence in post-social China. So thanks for your listening to our episodes today. Have a good day.